0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, so let's get into it. This is, uh, we have so much I want to talk about today on this uh, second Sunday, Ordinary Time with this gospel, the wedding feast at Cana, um... Before, before I get into it though, I just want to say this, and I've mentioned this before, and it, it bears repeating, that um, one of the things that absolutely changed, from, changed the way I experienced Mass was when I started coming to Mass with a, like a Mass journal, when I started bringing with me my Mass journal. So like during readings, during the homilies, the things that were jumping out, songs, whatever, prayers, I would jot them down, and I had something to pray with later on, right? So you come to Mass with the ex- expectation That God's going to say something to you, right? So, just as an encouragement, not because I think I've got, you know, the words of everlasting life. The Lord does, and he wants to speak them to you, and it's important to try and get them down. That's a freebie. Now let's get to the homily. Sound good? Okay. So, what I want to do with us this morning is, in some ways, a... uh, I kind of want to do like a Bible study, so to speak, with us this morning for this gospel wedding feast at Cana. I want to kind of go line by line, verse by verse a little bit. We should be out of here in about two and a half hours. So it'll be okay. So, uh, because there's so much goodness here, there's so much goodness here. But before we get into the gospel, I, I just want us to be situated. I want to situate us within John's gospel because his gospel begins, John's gospel begins with the phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. Do we know any other book in the Bible? That begins with those three words in the beginning. Anybody raise your hand, you can shout out if you know it. Genesis, very good. You all get gold stars this morning. Okay, the book of Genesis. There's only two books in the Bible, only two books in the Bible that begin with those words in the beginning. In the beginning. The world's creation in the beginning in Genesis. And now John is telling us, he's signaling to us by using those words, Berashit in Hebrew. He's using those words, telling us, I'm about to tell you the story of the recreation. When God is going to recreate, put back together what had fallen asunder because of sin. So as you follow along in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, you hear this this litany of a phrase, this succession of a phrase. You hear John say, the next day, and then he describes something. And the next day, and he describes something. And the next day, which brings us to day 3, right? The next day, the next day, the next day. It brings us to day 3. Then as you follow along, you skip ahead to where we are in the gospel today, John chapter 2. The, the, the folks who make the lectionary, they cut off the first few words at the very beginning of John chapter 2. If you open your Bible at home, you open John chapter 2, what you read there is, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Which begs the question, on the third day from what? From when we last were counting, right? So. The next day, the next day, the next day, day three. Count ahead three more days on the third day from then, which brings us to day six. And why does that matter? Because in the book of Genesis, when you follow those days, day one through six, on day six, you have a wedding. That's where you're all supposed to say, whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. Day 6 of Genesis, you have a wedding. It's the first wedding. You have the creation of the human person, male and female. You have God waking Adam up after he just fashioned his bride Eve. He looks at her. He says, this one at last is bone on my bones, flesh on my flesh. This one shall be called woman. Those words, Adam's ecstatic cry from his heart, those words become the marital covenantal formula in the Old Testament. Those are marital words. It's God the Father bringing to Adam as the bridegroom, the bride. Saying, here she is. Here she is. Day six in Genesis, you have a wedding. Day six in the Gospel of John, in the world's recreation, you have a wedding. What's the point? What's the point? It's as if John again is signaling. He's saying to us, I'm about to show you the new Adam and the new Eve. Right? Our story began with an Adam and Eve, our first parents, their marriage in in Eden. Our recreation begins with a new Adam. In a new Eve, who is it? Who are they? So what does John tell us? He says, the mother of Jesus was there, and so was our Lord. So was our Lord. And I know right now some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, how could Mary be the new Eve? Isn't she Jesus' mother? Like, what's going on, right? I know some of you are thinking it. All right, so let's talk about that. In the order of nature... Mary, of course, is always, she's always Jesus' mother. In the order of nature, she is always Jesus' mother. But in the order of grace, in the mystical reading, in the deep spiritual sense of the gospel, in the deep spiritual sense of God's design and plan, Mary is the new Eve. She is the fulfillment, the embodiment, the personification of everything that Israel was meant to be, the bride, open and receptive to the bridegroom of God. Right? That's who she is, who so perfectly opened herself at the Annunciation, which is like a proposal. Right, Heaven comes to earth, bends the knee before this maiden and says, will you let me in? Will you give yourself to me so completely? And she, of course, says yes. She says yes. So we have the new Adam. We have the new Eve, the new wedding, the sixth day. You with me so far? Okay, good. See, this is where you want to have a pencil in your journal. it be jotting notes down. You with me? All right. So then John tells us the problem at this wedding. He tells us the problem at this wedding. He says, the wine ran short. And of course it ran short because Jesus and his buddies showed up. Okay, so like, that's literally, I mean, John is implying that, right? Jesus, he's like, Jesus and his disciples are there. And the next thing he says, and the wine ran short. Okay, so. Which again is like why I get dumbfounded when I'm at wedding receptions and people see me there holding a drink and they're like, can priests drink? I'm like, do you not read the Bible? Like, (laughs) wine is a very important thing to the Lord. It was Jesus first miracle. That's all I'm saying. I don't know what, you know, puritanical form of Christianity you have. So, all right, so he says there's no more wine. Mary brings the issue to Jesus. She just simply states it. They have no wine. Okay, there are so many layers of meaning here. They have no wine. In ancient Jewish weddings, ancient Jewish weddings were, I mean, of course, similar to our modern day weddings, but our modern day weddings, we think they're extravagant. We got our Pinterest board. You plan it out for 30 years before you, may, you know, find the guy. We think they're extravagant, right? But compared to Jewish weddings, Jewish weddings were these massive feasts, these seven-day affairs where everybody in town was invited. So much partying, so much celebration, right? Because it's it's a microcosm of the world's creation. The Jews knew that with every marriage, every nuptial relationship, it's a sign that the Lord is recreating things, right? So it's a it's a it's a little it's a little recreation. So this seven-day party, and part of this is that you needed to have enough food and drink for all the folks who are coming. Right? So the families would often hire out professionals to come in to be the purveyors, the suppliers of wine. And here you have the wine running out. This was socially so problematic for the ancient Jews, right? This custom of great hospitality. You can't run out of wine. That's like the one thing you're not allowed to run out of, but they've run out of wine. It's socially problematic this and you think for the head waiter his business his whole business could be crumbling before his eyes his reputation is on the line what if people find out that I'm the guy who can't do good enough math to calculate how much wine I need so he's freaking out but in a deeper sense on a deeper sense wine is more than just wine in this story because all throughout the old testament wine is this rich symbol of divine love it's a symbol of divine love. All throughout the Old Testament, you hear the prophets talking about the Lord's wine as a symbol of his love. You hear it in Isaiah where he talks about in the coming days of the Messiah, he will establish his mountain. And on this mountain, the Lord will provide for all peoples a rich food, a rich feast with juicy foods and pure choice wines. I love that adjective. just It's choice, right? Pure choice wines for all peoples, for all peoples. You read the Psalms, you hear about the Lord's wine over and over again. The Song of Songs, you hear about wine as this image of love over and over again. So what's the problem? Again, reading through the spiritual lens, what's the problem? We have run out of it. We've run dry. We are out of the Lord's love. We've run out. How? Because of sin, because of original sin, because of our own personal sins, because of all of these things, because humanity has closed itself over and over again to the Lord's offer of grace. We've lived in this posture of closedness. And that's a problem because we are only designed to run on one thing, and that's the Lord's love. And we've run out of it. So what's Jesus' response? He says to his mother, woman, my hour has not yet come. What's going on with this response? What's the deal with this hour? So whenever Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus uses that expression, my hour, it was always in relation to his passion and his death. He uses it as a, like as a euphemism, as a circumlocution, as like another way of describing the time is coming where I will enter into my passion and death. He calls that his hour. At another point in the Gospel of John, there's this crowd who wants to seize Jesus and stone him to death, but he makes his way through the crowd. And John narrating it says, they weren't able to because his hour had not yet come. And then later on, get to John chapter 15, the Last Supper discourse. Jesus is unpacking his heart. He's like gushing with his apostles at the Last Supper. And it says he says to them, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And immediately after this, it says they sing a hymn. And go down to the Kidron Valley and enter the Garden of Gethsemane, where, of course, we know how the story goes. He enters into the agony. He enters into the agony in Gethsemane. So in other words, like I said, the hour is the time when he intends to pour out divine love. And it isn't here at Cana, Mom. This isn't when I intend to do that. This is not the moment where I intend to be poured out, to pour out the divine love. The hour is my suffering The hour is the passion. When I'm on the cross, pouring out blood and water, those like when the soldier comes to him and lances him in the side, he pierces the pericardium. It's that sack around the heart. It's filled with fluid. I heard a, a, a heart surgeon tell me one time, he described it as the heart's last line of defense. That even that gets pierced in Jesus. That He's saying, I hold nothing back from you. And gushing out from His heart comes blood and water. The symbols of divine love. He's pouring everything out from the cross. And who is there at the foot of the cross? Mary. And what does He call her? Woman. Woman. There's two times... In all of the Gospels where Jesus refers to his mother as woman and both are at weddings of course the wedding feast of Cana our gospel today woman my hour is not yet come and here at the foot of the cross woman behold your son Good Friday, you've heard me preach this before, but Good Friday, again, it isn't just the murder of Jesus. It's not the unfortunate conclusion to his life that was so full of promise, and man, it just got cut short. Good Friday, his passion and death, it was the whole point for his coming. For this reason, I have entered the world. For this reason, I have come. To enter into this, to do this. And what is it? He comes to mount the wood of the cross to offer his life to his his bride. He comes to lay his life down. That's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. That's why every single one of you who've ever gotten married, when you come to the church, you come to stand in front of a altar. An altar is a place where things get offered in sacrifice, where where things come to die. You come to stand in front of an altar to say what Jesus said, I've come to lay my life down for you the thrust of love, anybody who's ever fallen in love, you get to the point where you finally say, I have nothing left to give except myself. That's what's happening on the cross. That's why we have the audacity to call that Good Friday because it's a wedding. It's not just an execution, it's a wedding. And his mother is there as the new Eve, as the bride, as the bride. But this time at Cana, this wedding, this is not the moment yet. And so for his mother, he performs this anticipatory miracle where he's going to turn water into wine because he knows I intend one day, very soon, to turn death into life, to turn a cross into a throne. I intend to turn a tomb into a womb. I intend to turn the most horrible thing into the most glorifying thing. I intend to turn my very blood, uh, to turn wine into my very blood. So he does this anticipatory miracle. Let's, let's just say another, let's just keep going, let's say a word about this miracle. Jesus, he says to the waiters, Mary says to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. These waiters, right, these waiters who know, man, we're in a bad spot right now. Our head waiter, our boss is freaking out because he's run out of wine. We're probably going to get fired because we probably screwed up over servant people. Because that happened in the ancient world too, right, okay. So they're freaking out, so they come to Jesus Next, John tells us about these stone jars, these jars for ceremonial washing. Don't picture little jars. Picture those gigantic, like industrial trash cans. Like those big, big black trash cans. Like six of those made out of stone. Jesus says, fill those with water. Okay, now you have to picture you're one of those servers. You're freaking out because your boss is freaking out, and you come to this guy who's gonna fix the wine problem, and he says to you, fill those big things there with water and you're thinking oh gosh who's gonna tell him um I, I'm, I jesus i'm i'm so sorry um we we ran out of wine not water it we need wine uh, sorry uh, hate to be a bother right and jesus says no 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 fill him to the brim with water i was so struck by this thinking about all the times in my life where I have said to the Lord, this is the problem, and I hear him saying, I want you to do this. I'm like, "Um, were you listening? I don't think you're listening. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one. Have you ever had an experience where you felt like the Lord says to you, do this thing that seems to be the very opposite of the thing that you're asking for? Right? This is exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, just trust me. Just trust me. What's amazing, too, about this whole ceremonial washing thing is that for Jews in Jesus' day, there grew up all of these customs involving washing and purification. And by turning the purification water, the ritual water, from water into wine, what Jesus was doing, I never thought about this before, Jesus was taking from them their ability to do the customs of the law that they were used to doing. Because you can't do purifying washings with wine. What Jesus was doing is he was redefining the terms of the relationship that no longer is it like, okay, we do these things and we make ourselves pure and now we're in right relationship with the Lord. He's saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how this works. The relationship that you have with me is one where you open yourself to receive and drink in the gratuitous wine of my divine love. You ain't in control is basically what he's saying. I'm taking away the stone jars. You aren't in control of this relationship. Your job is to open and receive. So he tells the servers to fill the jars. He tells them to fill the jars. And he says, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And you have to picture again. Picture their faces. They're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. I'm, I'm in big trouble, right? Here's the thing. Here, for me, as I was reading this, like the miracle of miracles in this story isn't so much the fact that they turned water into wine. It's the fact that this server who watched Jesus, who filled those things with water, takes them out, and walks up to his boss, who's freaking about the wine situation, like they actually do it. That's the miracle, that they actually have the obedience to say, okay, I guess we're going to take this. He's like, here boss, here's some wine, knowing that it's water, right? That's the miracle in my, in my book as I was reading this. The, 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 the amazing obedience. Okay, so we, of course we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends, the water into wine, the head waiter's amazing response. Okay, what's the point that I'm driving at here? Let me land this plane. I know, because I know I seem I'm scattered all over the place. I, I promise I have a point. What's the point? This week, as I was praying through this gospel, I I just got so drawn in. Every word was blowing my mind. Every verse was blowing my mind. Picturing their faces, picturing the faces of these servers, picturing the face of the head waiter, all of them just watching this unfold. This is extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. It's so rich. And it's so deep. And I think the tragedy that so many of us in the church have experienced, so many who've left the church, that that we experience in our modern church is that we, in our preaching and teaching of the gospel, our presentation of Jesus is that we have undone, if you will, we have undone the miracle of Cana. That we have turned the wine, the incredible wine of the gospel, back into water. We've turned Jesus into being, he is the most fascinating, compelling, beautiful human being who's ever lived. And we turned him into something that's pedantic, boring, dull, safe. He's a tame house cat we've turned him into. When in fact he's Aslan, he's the lion, he's unbelievable, right? I just share all this because like, the church that I gave my life for, the church that we're gathering here to be a part of, We come because the gospel is extraordinary news that our God is not just simply up in heaven saying, just be nice, just get along, and I'll see you when you die, right? The gospel is the extraordinary news that, like, the God who made everything came to rescue us, to unite himself to us in a bond that's like marriage. And he's saying, I'm not left you orphaned, I'm not left you abandoned, I have been with you through every part of the dark night of history, I am with you. And here right now, at this Mass, we are gathered at the fulfillment of the wedding at Cana. Cana was just a sign that was pointing ahead to the Mass. Like the wine that they had, amazing as it was, pales in comparison to the feast that we are receiving in the Eucharist. That here we are at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Again, another wedding. The supper of the Lamb is the wedding celebrated in heaven. And the bridegroom is here and his mother is here and he desires this hour. He desires this hour more than anything to pour it out for you, into you, for you to receive his love. And all he commands, it's the command of his mother, do whatever he tells you. And so we are here in obedience to feast on divine love. That's an incredible miracle. So brothers and sisters, let's just open our hearts again to really engage, to open ourselves to receive what's being offered here because it is exquisite, amen.